scripture reading in Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 17. It reads, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who does not show partiality nor take a bribe. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So show your love for the alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and cling to him. And you shall swear by his name. He is your praise, and he is your God, who has done these great and awesome things for you, which your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons in all, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. You shall therefore love the Lord your God, and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are the great, awesome God, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, there is no one like you among the whole earth. You are good in all your ways. And Lord, you supply for every call that you make unto us. And you have desired, Lord, not a a song or just a sacrifice, God, of, of anything from our hands, but Lord, you've desired our heart that you may fill all in all and you may fill us the abundance of your presence, Lord, a heart you have desired, a living sacrifice is what you ask of us, that your glory may be displayed in our lives and redeeming our lives, but also, Lord, that we may be a blessing to others as we simply walk by faith and walk trusting you, Lord, with the consequences that lie ahead. Lord, may we learn from your word this morning. May we be humble of heart. And Lord, uh, that you would just... Show us in your word uh, where we are and, and, the, and the change that needs to take place to be made more into your image. And we entrust these things into your name. Amen. Y'all may have a seat. Well, I'm thankful to be here again. Um, I'm thankful for your support and letting me keep practicing on y'all as guinea pigs. I appreciate that for my other speaking engagements I have. I'm thankful for Charlie, though he's, he's absent, and his obedience to do this every week. It's seriously such a blessing to, to have him uh, and leading us in the Word. Um, we, are, we are truly blessed to, to be sitting uh, just under his teaching as the Lord is just teaching him, and, and he's expressing that truth to us. And understandably, he's run up to Pennsylvania after teaching what he taught on last week, and I think I would be too, <laughs> after a hard message like that, and so he's taken a, a bit of a break in Pennsylvania, and I can appreciate that, so I gladly said I would uh, I'd fill in for him this week. Well, I like the book of Acts. Uh, it's something, uh, it's a book that God's always just kind of put onto my heart, and that's where we're going to be actually this morning, um, not in Deuteronomy, <laughs> but the book of Acts in chapter 8, and and the book of Acts has always has struck me for some reason. I think part of that is uh, I had a class of the book of Acts when I was at Columbia International University, and the Lord really used that just to transform 
my understanding um, of him and just to see the early church. And, and maybe it's because I love history personally and uh, I'm kind of a nerd in that way. And, and so to see the early steps of the church, you know, now that we're thousands of years ahead, to see how the beginnings first took place is fascinating to me. Maybe it's because these men and women that we read in the book of Acts, when I, when I read through it, I'm just so simply challenged by their instant obedience. There's just, there's just nothing that Scripture records through the book of Acts in that you know, they were complaining or grumbling. It's just their, their love for the Lord is so real. And then from their, lo- their, their love for the Lord, that next step of obedience is as simple as that. And, and for me, living in a, in a world that I live in today, and just I, f- I feel like there's so many excuses I can make. Uh, I, I look back into the, the early church and what they were facing with the persecutions that they were going through, and yet their love was pure, and the church was growing. And that is just such an encouragement to me to see their obedience of faith. In the book of Acts, you know, there's, there's two main players. You kind of see uh, the apostles that are, that are taking place in the beginning. You know, it's Peter, and, and the Lord is just using him after his three uh, rejections of Christ. Then the Lord, you know, reestablishes him uh, three times. I love you, Peter. You know, feed my sheep, all that. And, and Peter just takes off, you know, with the boldness and confidence of Christ. He's just going, and he's preaching, and and it's incredible obedience there. And then, you know, the last half of the book of Acts from 9 on, you really see Paul and Paul's obedience and, uh, and, and his just change of heart as the Lord breaks him on the road to Damascus. And he's going to be a witness to the Gentiles. And he goes in just the incredible work that God is doing through one simple man. And right in the middle, we have another guy that the uh, book of Acts records for us. Another guy that starts with the P. Doesn't get quite the recognition that Peter and Paul do, but my heart really resonates with him. And his name is Philip. And that's what we're going to be looking at today uh, Philip and, and his obedience in faith. But chapter 8 starts uh, taking out of chapter 7. And chapter 7 was filled with uh, a man named Stephen. He was full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith, a man of good reputation, Acts chapter 6 says. And for preaching Christ, he was taken and put on trial, and ultimately he is sentenced to death. And chapter 8, verse 1, starts in that very same context there. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. And he would put them into prison. And this is what we commonly uh, call in the New Testament, uh, what Charlie was talking about when he was going through 1 Peter, the diaspora, or the dispersion of the saints. And the the persecution of the church uh, actually begins to... Uh, fulfill in God's promise the Great Commission that they're going to be spreading all over Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the remotest parts of the world. How would they do that? Well, part of that was just through the obedience of going, and part of that was honestly through persecution. They were packing up their stuff and they were fleeing. And the Lord was using the persecution uh, to scatter the seed amongst the whole Mediterranean area. And that's kind of what uh, that idea of dispersion or scattering kind of gives a picture of. You know, 
You remember you were a kid, you grab a dandelion in your backyard and you blow it, of course. And the seed scatters. The seed goes. And you don't think anything of it because you're a kid. You thought it was fun. You grab another one. You blow it again. And your parents are like, no, stop. (laughs) Because that seed is scattering right all throughout that yard. From one plant, that seed is beginning to scatter. And that's what what the harvest and what the seed of the church was was doing. They were being scattered all throughout uh, the Mediterranean world there. And they're being scattered, and, and the reason for their persecution of the church, we know from Acts chapter 9, is because they're identifying with the person and work of Jesus Christ. And they are following the way. They have broken off from the traditional Judaism, and they are following this man, Jesus, and the teaching that he has given to them. And they're going and teaching others from what they have been taught. So he's the reason for the persecution, but he's also the encouragement in the midst of that persecution. He's the reason and the encouragement. We see that at the very end of Stephen's life. If you just look one column over, chapter 7. After he, Stephen gives his defense in verse 54, it says, Now when they heard this, the religious leaders, they were cut to the quick, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven, and he saw the glory of God Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And in verse 59, it says, They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. With the peace and the comfort, the confidence of the Holy Spirit living within him, Stephen walks to his death. And the last thing he says is, Lord, do not hold the sin against them. After having said this, he fell asleep. And a very, very picture of the Lord Jesus there on the cross as well. So the comfort of the Holy Spirit, he walks obediently even into the face of death, confidently knowing that the Lord and his grace is sufficient to meet in that time of his greatest need. And the Lord did not disappoint the Lord was at work through his people. And we know from church history that the blood of the martyrs, it says, the seed of the church. And so by laying, they're laying down their lives that the church is actually growing in this way. Uh, as much as the Romans and the Jews hated the spread of the gospel, the Lord was using it in his sovereign hands to spread the gospel. And it was here at the, at the epicenter here in Jerusalem, it says, the apostles in, uh, in verse 2 there, they were remaining. So other people were were spreading out. They were fleeing the persecutions. But the apostles, they stayed, and they did, in a sense, the dirty work there at the epicenter of the persecutions, and they remained. And the Lord used their obedience there in Jerusalem to keep the church together and and really use them to encourage the saints through different letters that were being sent abroad. And their obedience to stay was, it does not seem to be any kind of obligation it was a desire. They knew what could have awaited them. They saw what happened to Stephen, and yet they chose to stay out of the obedience of their heart. And yet there are some that move. We know in this very beginning here, they begin to spread. In verse 4, it says, Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And those who were moving, it seems that they were moving also in faith. And they were moving to these surrounding areas. And though they couldn't take their silver and their gold, 1 Peter reminds us they were moving with something better. They had a greater treasure. 
They had an imperishable seed that had been sown into their heart. And so as they fled, they took their Bibles with them. You know, as they fled, they took their testimonies with them. They fled and they went still on the mission. Though we are leaving in maybe different circumstances than we expected, we will still be obedient to the command that God has given to us to go into all the nations and to go teaching and to go in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so they go. They go with their imperishable seed, the abundant life that no man could steal, rob, or snatch away from them. And so what the enemy is just trying to mean for evil in the beginning of the book of Acts here, the persecutions that he's trying to stamp it out, he's trying to get rid of it, the Lord is using to actually then spread his truth as only God can take and use for good. It reminds me recently, we've heard this from, from Charlie, though, uh, this past summer we had, a, we had a fire at his hill. And I made sure Chase is in the audience, and so I'm looking at you, Chase, here. Just kidding. We had this, this small fire that broke out. Michael and I get a call. He's in my office. We bust up there in the van. We get out there, and, you know, you just don't know in the moment you know, when, they, when they hear, you know, there's a fire at camp, you just don't know what that means. You know, Levi didn't really explain it very well. So we bust up there, and when we get there, and, and we see the fire, it's on the outset of camp, and your, your mind goes to the, the worst possible thing. You know, all of camp's going to burn down. You know, there's no kids there, but still, this could be disastrous. And so we get out, and at that point, kind of your instinct is kind of taken over. You're not really, really thinking most clearly. Your adrenaline is pumping through your brain, and I get out there and I see the guys there trying to, you know, beat the fire with their shirts off. And I'm just like, okay, right? I, as I'm running over there, taking the shirt off, I start beating the flames. And I'm like, the third, fourth beat in, I'm like, you know, this is not helping. I'm not stopping the fire by fanning it. <laughs> My shirt, as I was trying to beat it and put it out, was actually spreading the flame. And it was giving oxygen to this fire. And it's just getting more and more and more. Dang it. <laughs> right, so then I got the shovel and I started trying to stamp, you know, put it out underneath that. And that's how I see the beginning of the, of the book of Acts is like that. You know, the enemy is trying to stamp out this fire, try to beat this fire that, of the gospel spreading. And, and instead of getting rid of it, instead of suppressing it, it's actually growing and it's multiplying. And, and the faithfulness of these witnesses who are both staying and dying for their faith, but also going and spreading what they know to be true about the Lord, the Lord is using that and multiplying his church as only, again, God is faithful to do. Both types of witnesses, those who went and those who stayed, I believe stayed and went in faith, in obedience, ultimately to the call that they were given and the Lord to go with his great commission and to teach others about his name. Yeah, I imagine reading this personally, I just putting myself into this story here, and, and you know the, the title going around is, you know, for any of those who are in the church, as, as Paul, verse 3, is ravaging the church, he's going house after house, you know, dead or alive, he's, gonna, he's, he's taking these people. I imagine after reading that and just reading what happened to Stephen, verse 4 would say, therefore those who had been scattered went about keeping their heads low. You know, waiting for this whole thing to kind of die out. You know, we're just going to kind of keep it cool. And then once things kind of settle down, then we'll kind of come out and go, right? And that's how I read it in my, just my natural reading of this passage. But it says, those who have been scattered went about preaching the word. 
Hey, they went about with their Bibles and they are going. No matter the consequence. They are going in obedience, leaving the consequences in God's hands. And this is the command, and we are doing this willfully unto the Lord. And so they're not going and, and hiding. They're going and they're heralding the gospel of Christ. They are preaching the word. And this, this really is a testimony in the early church of the power of a transformed, supernatural life. Men and women filled with the Holy Spirit of confidence and boldness to be even obedient in the face of death as these people are. I don't think they're naive. I don't think they don't know what could potentially wait for them. I think they know very well. They may have personal relationships of those who have been dragged out by Saul himself, and yet they're going in obedience and the willingness of heart of Christ. In those two passages, you know, Matthew 28 Verse 18 through 20, that all authority has been given to me, Jesus says, in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. In that last phrase, and lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. And that's, that's that crucial part that we understand. We're not just going and just hoping this works, but we are going knowing that the very presence of God is living within us to give us this confidence, to give us this action of obedience in the face of danger. Acts 1.8, right after that, says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And the promise that God had given us, a comforter, an interceder, those who would lead us and guide us into truth, that he was given. And that we will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and even to the remotest parts of the world. And today we're going to be looking at that Samaria and the remotest part of the world with, uh, with, with Philip. And before we get there, one of the questions that has, has come up in my mind as I've read this passage, and I see those who had been scattered, and they were about preaching the word. Verse 5 says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria, and he began proclaiming Christ to them. The question I've been asking myself is, are these men simply going out of obligation, or are they going out of the obedience of their heart? And what's the difference? between acting in obedience and acting in obligation. Is there a difference there? And so I've been really meditating on that and, and thinking about that um, and just, just thinking, what is the difference here? And so just a real, real simple couple of definitions here. Obligation, an act in which we are bound to do. An act in which we are bound to do. That we really don't feel like we have any choice in it. We, we feel like we have to do something in order for something to work. An act in which we are bound to. But obedience is to purposefully come under authority and then act in relationship to that authority. So it's a, it's a purposeful coming under the authority, but then it's to act in relationship to it. You know, that it goes, in a sense, both ways there. When we come before the Lord out of obligation, we are not expressing a relationship of love unto the Lord. We really are expressing a man-made religion, a set of do's and don'ts, but the heart is not there when we act in obligation to the Lord. There is no relationship in obligation, is the simple truth I came to you. There's no relationship in obligation, just feeling like I have to do something. And what does the Lord say about 
obligation versus obedience. And there's actually a lot of Scripture that he says here. One practical example that he actually gives us in Scripture is, uh, if you remember back into 1 Samuel, the Old Testament here, you have a king, the first king, King Saul. And he has three acts of disobedience. He has, he has three acts in which uh, the Lord is against him according to what he has done. And in 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, God has told him through the prophet Samuel, when you are about to go into battle, wait for me to come. And I will give the burnt offering, and then the battle will begin. But you must wait for me to give the offering. According to the law, only the priest could give the offering. Right? And Saul was not a priest. And so he said, wait. But then the problem comes up. If you remember the story, right? The Philistines, they're massing their army, and they're huge. And while they're massing their army, Saul's army is running. And they're hiding. And it says they're jumping into holes, and they're going every which direction they can. And so Saul's looking behind him, very little. And he's looking ahead of him, and he's saying, oh boy, this is getting out of control. And he goes ahead, and he acts. And he makes the sacrifice, Right? God told me to wait, but if I just make the sacrifice, if I can just get ahead here and make the sacrifice, then the battle can begin and we can start. And so he makes the sacrifice, and of course, as Scripture is just so great in reading, as he finishes the sacrifice, Samuel shows up. Samuel arrives on the scene. And his, his comment to him is so hard to read. He says, Saul, Saul, what have you done? He goes on to say that next line, 1 Samuel 15, verse 22, he says, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? See, Saul sacrificed the offering because he was relating to God's law on the basis of obligation. We have to do this in order for something to then happen. Rather than the obedience of faith. And so he doesn't wait for Samuel to come, but makes the sacrifice anyway. And God says, the Lord is not in that. The Lord desires the heart of obedience. Psalm 40, verse 4 through 8 says, Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come in the scroll of the book that is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And this is written of Jesus. We know from the book of Hebrews. The writer mentions this very verse of him. And it's taking back us to, to the gospels of Jesus when he says, as he's walking the world, I do nothing of my own initiative. But everything I do is in obedience to the Father. Everything I do, I, I see the Father and I hear the Father do. And so Jesus exemplified for us while we are here in this world that we're not just doing good things because we feel like we should, but that we are living in an every step, every moment obedience to the Father. And that then is how we are to live in relationship to Jesus. So as he lived in relationship to the Father, we are to be living in relationship to him. Psalm 51, verse 16 through 17 says, For you, God, do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. 
oh God, you will not despise. And so it's not a sad heart, not a broken heart. Oh man, this girl just broke up with me. It's a broken heart of humility. It's a broken heart, a contrite heart, the heart that trembles at God's word. And it says we don't move, we don't act, unless we know that God is relating this to us. John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. And we naturally obey. I was just sharing with the students as we were walking through Exodus through Deuteronomy. We will naturally obey that which we love. And you think about, you know, just your life before you were Christian, as you're a Christian now. We will naturally obey that which we give attention to and that in which we love. Right? That's why in the Gospel of John, chapter 14, you'll have six to seven times that Jesus will couple obedience and love. Those two terms cannot be undone. They are, they, are, they are meant to be together. What you love, what you cherish, you will be obedient to. Right, And so the Lord knows that of our heart, and he knows that obedience to him can only come from a heart that's been changed. Obedience to him can only, be, only come from a heart that's been reciprocated and loves one another. And so in Ezekiel 36, verse 26 through 27, he says, So I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And John 15, 5 repeats that and says, so that apart from God, we can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so the Lord has, has understood that in order to be obedient to him, we need a change of heart and a heart that loves, that feels, is able to reciprocate the love in which he has loved us with. And he's given us a new heart in Christ, the spirit of God that lives within us. And so my question I've been asking myself um, as I've been preparing for this sermon you know, even this morning, in what, I do, in, in what I'm doing, am I living out of the source of obedience or am I living out of source of obligation? What I do, because I think we can often subtly walk down this line that we are relating to God in obligation, right? When we're praying to read his word, to meditate on his truths, often we, always, we think, oh, I should be doing this, and therefore we do it. This is the right thing to do. This is the Christian thing to do. I should be going and talking to that person, right? And that's, and that's a heart of obligation, right? And, and God sees that, and God knows that, where our heart is. And are we acting because we love the Lord and desire to know him and desire for him to be expressed through our life? Or are we just acting because we think this will ultimately just please God by our actions? Let me tell you, today, the Lord doesn't desire your obligations. He, he doesn't need your obligations to Him. The Lord desires your heart. He desires the obedience of your heart. You can do the right thing from the wrong motivation, and the Lord receives no glory. We can do the right thing with the wrong motivation, and the Lord receives no glory in that, no praise. His desire is for us to relate to him, to be relational with him with an attitude of obedience from a heart that loves, and God does not separate that. And that is what I believe the early church 
shows here. Those who have been scattered about, they go about preaching the word. And then we get more specific back in the book of Acts here in, in chapter 8 um, with the man named Philip. He says, in the crowds or with, that he went to in Samaria, they were with one accord, giving attention to what he was saying. And they saw and they heard the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice. And many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in the city. So scripture zooms in on this man named Philip here. Again, one of the men who, like Stephen, uh, men chosen in Acts chapter 6 to oversee the practical outworkings of the gospel of Jesus, to be meeting the needs of the Hellenistic Jews and their wives, who were being, it seemed like a, a social, they seemed to be socially excluded from the things um, that these Messianic Jews were, were doing here. And so we know from Acts 6, he's a man of good reputation. We know that he is full of the Spirit of God, which just means that he was expressing, living in obedience and, and living in a way in which the Spirit of God was known and seen in him. And it says he also was filled with the wisdom of God. And we see from, from his example, he is taking to heart in obedience the commandment of the Lord. He finds himself in Samaria. Again, another socially outcasted people group. Like the Hellenistic Jews who he first got commissioned to help were, so are the Samaritans, absolutely despised by the Jews. I mean, there could not have been a, a greater you know, separation of people groups than the Jews and the Samaritans. They did not get along, to, to speak very simply there. And yet we see he is a man after the spirit of Christ going to Samaria as Jesus did as well, as, as Jesus was working in this area as well. And the Lord is having his way in this place. Look at the, the, the response of the people is, is striking. You would think Philip coming to Samaria, that they would have outcasted him, hated him, walked away, put up walls. And yet it says the crowd was with one accord. They were with one mind. They were giving attention to what he was saying. They were seeing the actions they were being worked through him by the Spirit of God, and it says, and they were believing the word that he was saying. And so the actions ultimately led them to believe in the word of Christ that he was preaching to them. So much so, if you look down in, in uh, chapter 8, verse 12, it says, But when they believed Philip preaching the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were being baptized, men and women alike. So again, that baptism is an outward expression of the inward faith, the inward change that has taken place in their heart. And so they are rejoicing. And the fruit of the Spirit is being known through Philip's obedience to these people groups. Right? The abiding in Christ is now bearing its fruit in and through them. And Madrian Thomas, he has a, 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 just a very helpful word to me in, in this area of of what we're going through, is from the saving life of Christ. And just, he always had just a great way with words. And so I just want to read it for you. It's two sentences here. It says, It is for you to be, and it is for him to do. Restfully available to the saving life of Christ, enjoying the richest measure of the divine presence, a body wholly filled and flooded with God himself, but instantly obedient to the heavenly impulse. This is your vocation, this is your victory, and this is your life. 
So he says, it's for him to be and for you to do. And so we are restfully available. We're not getting ahead of the Lord and, and just, again, by obligation, saying, oh, I should go talk to that person. Oh, he looks like he's hurting. I should probably go talk with him. You know, or sit next to that person who looks like they're having a bad day. But to be restfully available for the Lord to then speak. And then, he says, when he speaks, when he prompts the heart, he says, then you are instantly obedient. Then you are to go. And we're going out of the source of God's initiative in our life. And that's what I want to just continue with as we uh, move through Scripture and pick it back up in verse 26 of Acts chapter 8. The idea of, of Philip being instantly obedient then to the heart of God. Um, before that, in those, those verses, are, is, a, is a contrasting man named Simon, contrasted uh, by, by Philip's obedience. Simon and his disobedience, thinking he can buy and sell the Holy Spirit. But we come back to, to Philip in, in Acts chapter 26. And we read this. So, I'm sorry, but an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip, saying, Get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert road. So he got up and went. So I'll pause there in our story here. Everything I've read about this from different commentators and just remembering when I've always gone through the book of Acts, I have always been so struck by that simple phrase, get up and go. This is a desert road. And so he gets up and goes. Because we remember just a couple verses before, his ministry with the Samaritans is booming. It's successful. What he's doing with them is, is having huge results. And yet God says, it's time to move on. It's time to go to the remotest parts of the world now. You know, what's, what's on a desert road? Nothing. It's like West Texas. There's just nothing there. Right? A desert road is full of just desert surrounding it. And what's in the desert? Nothing. <laughs> There's nothing there. And so the Lord is, if you just take a step back and, and think about this, the Lord is asking him to leave a people, which people are coming together to him, and he's having a great ministry with them. They're believing, and he says, I want you to go now. On that road, it's a desert road. But just go. It makes me think, it reminds me of the account of Hebrews chapter 11, when talking about Abraham. He says, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, uh, when he was called to obey, by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, he went out, not knowing where he was going. Very similar to Stephen. And here, we have no record of Stephen, Stephen saying, so what's there? Or Why? Lord, look at what's happening here. There's, there's, there's no account here of a rebuttal from Stephen, but simply an attitude of faith that he gets up and he goes. Faith is the confident expectation that God, who knows all, sees all, and is able to work all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. I'm, what, I'm, what I'm struck by here with, with Philip is that we don't want to limit our faith to just mere common sense. 
So, so faith is not an attitude of obligation, but also faith is not merely just our common sense. Because right? my common sense says, uh, that wasn't God probably then, because I have a great ministry here, and people are coming to know the Lord here, and things are good here. We don't want to limit faith to just our common sense, but to be sensitive to the leading of the heavenly one and following him in obedience. It's an attitude of trust. God, you're asking me to go, and I'm trusting you with the consequences. Whatever that may be, my life is in your hands. And this is God's desire for us, is to walk by faith and to trust him with the consequences that are there. And Philip goes. And honestly, I'm looking at this, and if I'm Philip, I'm doubting. Right? I'm rationalizing in my mind. I'm thinking, well, these are all the reasons why this can't be God. And I've come so far that I rationalize God out of obedience. And I rationalize him right out of the equation. And that's been such a check to my heart as I've been preparing for this message. Am I living in an attitude of trust and dependence even though sometimes it doesn't make sense. Maybe even sometimes I don't feel like it in that moment. Am I trusting the Lord with the consequences that are to come with it? This is the battleground of faith here. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 says, We walk by faith and not by sight. Why? Because God sees not as man sees. God sees not as man sees. He is seeing the big picture. He is seeing the whole heart. And I think often the Lord tests our heart through different calls to be obedient and that make us kind of see, honestly, like our lives out of control. Maybe you can, maybe you can give an amen there or testify to that. But he tests our hearts, putting calls onto our, our life that seem to be like, okay, well, God, are you, you really know what you're doing here? They seem to be different than our expectation so that we wouldn't find the goodness to trust ourselves. So that we wouldn't find in ourselves the strength to keep living. But through his leading, that we remember that we are disciples of Christ. We are following Christ. It's like in the Old Testament, when the cloud picked up and moved, we are to follow. And where he stops, we stop. We don't know the land. He, you know, he tells the Israelites, you don't know the land in which you're going. That's why you're following me, because I do. That's why you're not getting ahead of me. That's why you're not walking to the side of me. You're simply following me. It's for God to lead and ours to follow. And sometimes God so leads in a way that's contrary to something that makes common sense to us. To test our hearts, are we following in obedience to him? I think for me, it was, it was coming from Bible school, honestly. You know, I was coming from a, from a context and a background in which none of my family had ever gone to Bible school. It was so foreign to them, they still, to this day, most of them, have no idea what happened at Bible school or what Bible school is or what I'm doing right now, <laughs> working at a Bible school. <laughs> um, and that, you know, that, that's okay. But that's the context in which I came out of. And so for the Lord to then you know, drop the plans that I had made for myself so forcefully, so, so obviously, and then lay it on my heart to come to Bible school was the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. And it's a safe place. 
You guys probably know it. It's a good place. And yet, I was telling the students when I was giving my testimony the other day, I was driving up from San Antonio. I, I stopped in Comfort for gas. It was like two miles away, but I stopped at that Chevron in Comfort for gas because I was so scared. God, where have you led me? What have I done? <laughs> like, I like you, but I'm not one of these Jesus freak people. You know, like, I'm not that crazy. It was one of the scariest things I had ever done. And the enemy was just using the flesh to try to entangle me in that moment. This isn't for you. <laughs> Look at you. You don't even know most of the books of the Bible. I was given a Bible verse when I came to Bible school. Uh, it was from Nahum. Only reason I knew it was probably in the Bible was because it had a semicolon with two numbers next to it on either side. <laughs> what is Nahum, right? This isn't for you. What are you doing? And in that moment, it was the flesh just trying to entangle me and rationalize myself out of what he was calling me to do. And by the grace of God, I really believe it was just by the Spirit of God, I was able to just to grab that gasoline nozzle and just put it back into the holder, get to my car and drive that next mile and a half up to his hill. And I praise God for the consequences that were after that. It changed my life. And that's part of what we get here in, in, this, in this passage here. Obedience strengthens our faith. As we step out and we recognize, I am not in control of my own life. It's no longer I who live, but Christ. And I am trusting him with the consequences. What's the natural uh, thing that happens there is that our faith grows in him. We have a further testimony strengthened that God is faithful. And as he's been faithful in my life in the past, so he will be in whatever is to come in the future. So it has great consequence for ourselves. But I want to finish today looking just at the consequence that it, our obedience to the Lord also has for others. Verse 27, so he gets up and he goes. And there is an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who's in charge of all of her treasure. And he had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning and sitting in his chariot and was reading the prophet Isaiah. Then the spirit said to Philip, go up and join his chariot. Philip ran up and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, well, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture which he, which he was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to slaughter. And as a lamb before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. The consequences of Philip's obedience was to come and meet this man who in the Roman and Greek society was from the ends of the earth. The Ethiopian kind of empire there was what they believed to be the southernmost part of the known world. Right, So this is God back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, again, fulfilling his promises from what they knew to be the end of the earth, the Ethiopian. Now, one man who was there, one man whose heart was ready to receive from him who came. We don't know a lot of the spiritual background. There's uh, commentators that believe different things on, on where he was, but we know that he was in Jerusalem that he had made a long pilgrimage there and was on his way back and really that his heart was not satisfied because he doesn't understand the scripture that's being spoken. 
He doesn't know who it's about or what it means. And so he did not come, and his, his, his needs were not met there. But God, in his great mercy and grace, provides the right scripture at the right time with the right man who followed in obedience to use God's word to point him to the word of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10, verse 14 through 15, just reminds us with these questions, these rhetorical questions, three of them. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? Also could be noted a proclaimer. And that's what Philip's been doing. And that's what he's been walking in obedience with back in Acts chapter 8, verse 5, proclaiming Christ. And the same wording there, verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning from this scripture, he preached, proclaimed Jesus to him. And as they went along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, water, what prevents me from being baptized? Very same response that was happening with the Samaritans. Wants to be baptized, outward expression of the inward change of his heart. We know from this that faith comes by hearing, and hearing the word of God. And that man comes to faith that day, and he takes his faith, a lot like the church was doing, and he goes, right? He's going back to Ethiopia, and he's taking with him now, not treasure, not gold, not just an empty pilgrimage, but he's taking the imperishable seed of Christ now back to that nation and to that people group, and God is spreading his glory around the earth, and his glory is being spread by simple acts of obedience, not obligations, and not being rationalized out of common sense, but simple acts of obedience. And I'm reminded of the same thing. I'm just I'm thankful of my own life for those who took the step of obedience and spoke to me. Punk kid, <laughs> San Antonio. They obeyed the Lord. My heart was changed. And now falling in obedience to Christ. And for my life, my family's life, people's lives through that. I know I said a lot this morning. There's a lot that God put on my heart these past couple days. The two truths I hope you just hear clearly today and and would consider today is this. One, faith is a response of an obedient heart and not one of obligation. One builds with gold, silver, and precious stones. The other builds with wood, hay, and stubble. And it won't last. And two, that faith is not just merely common sense. But faith is being sensitive to the leading of the heavenly one and following him. With the consequences being left in his hands. So our obedience is is an action done from the heart. It's knowing that my life is not my own. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it is Christ. And he is willing and working for his good pleasure. It's just simply mine to enjoy and to follow as he leads faithfully. And I give testimony today. I have not once regretted any act of obedience, any step of faith where I simply trusted the Lord and said, Lord, I leave the consequences in your hands. There's not one time where I've left and said, I've been failed, or I'm not fulfilled. Christ is faithful. 
and he ever will be in our hearts. So I don't know where you're at uh, in, the, in the specifics that God is calling on your heart to be obedient to. That's each, of, each one of us the Lord is, is working with individually. But I know that we can always start, as Romans 12, 1 says, to present our bodies a living and a holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is our spiritual of worship, so that from him and through him and to him would be all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that you are the great and faithful one. You are so faithful often when we are faithless. But Lord, I pray that from your word this morning, as I've been encouraged and continually am from the life of Philip, a man who sought just to follow you with his heart and left the consequences with you, Lord, that we would be people that do the same. God, that we would be people that are, that you are creating in us a heart that is pure, a heart that is clean, a heart that simply loves you, Lord. And in response to loving you, will be obedient to you. Not just to be obligated, but have a pure desire of our oneness and relationship with you. We respond. And Lord, we know that you will be faithful. And we trust you with your word. We trust you with our lives. You have not failed, nor will you. And we thank you for that great grace. It's in your name we pray. Amen.